Who's going now? Good morning, everybody. What a wonderful crowd. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you very warmly to this session with Professor Lyndall Ryan about mapping Aboriginal massacres. Before we start, my name is Cathy Colborn and I'm the Head of School of Humanities and Social Science in the Faculty of Education and Arts at the University of Newcastle. There's a few uh, long titles for you. And this session is also sponsored by the Centre for 21st Century Humanities. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodian of the lands and waters of Newcastle area, the Awabakal and Waramai peoples, and welcome all Aboriginal elders who may be present here with us today. <coughs> this session is part of a new series in the Writers' Festival called New Thinking, and it might seem strange to talk about a digital map project as part of a Writers' Festival, but I think you'll understand that the New Thinking series is touching on lots of interesting topics that our researchers are trying to explore. So as we move forward today, you'll also see the connection to the writing of history, and, and we'll talk about that uh, with Lyndall this morning. So before um, we actually start with some questions, I'd like to introduce you to our um, esteemed guest, Professor Lyndall Ryan. Lyndall studied at the University of Sydney, also at the Australian National University and Macquarie University, and for some time was head of women's studies at Flinders University in South Australia, and then she came to Newcastle, where she was the head of the School of Humanities at the Arimba campus between the late 1990s and sometime in the 2000s. And she's also held roles as director of research at this university at that campus. Now, Lyndall, I know Lyndall uh, now through working alongside Lyndall in the school, but I've also known Lyndall for a much longer time as someone who's taught history and read Lyndall's profoundly important work that was published in the early 1980s about Aboriginal Australians and subsequently reprinted several times. Lyndall's work has made an enormous contribution to our understanding of frontier histories, frontier violence, Indigenous histories and the writing of Indigenous histories in Australia, and became part of a storm around the writing of such histories. And so what we're talking about today is also somewhat contested and sensitive, and I understand that those uh, areas of contestation may emerge during both our conversation but also in question time. But the work is very, very important. Not only through published work but also through this ongoing research grant to look at the way uh, we might map colonial frontier violence, which was funded by the Australian Research Council in 2014 for a period of three years. Uh, this large digital mapping project is the, the main outcome, but not the only outcome of that project. There are also many written outcomes, including articles and book chapters and so on, numerous outcomes. And as you can imagine, even though research funders might fund a project for three years, that work is never complete in three years, particularly a large-scale project like this. So again, what we'll touch on today is the, the scope, the size, the impact of this project uh, quite you know, beyond the, the finish date of the research grant. It goes on, it keeps going, doesn't it, Lyndall? It's a, an ongoing experience. I'd also like to mention the significance of the project and its truly global impact. In 2017, news of the project was picked up by numerous media outlets across the world, starting with the Koori Mail, importantly, Sydney Morning Herald, the ABC, and then fanning out to the BBC, our own SBS, which is a global uh, kind of network of its own. The Guardian in the UK, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Smithsonian Magazine, The Australian Geographic, and most recently, Professor Mark McKenna at the University of Sydney has written a very important piece in the Australian Quarterly Essay 
in uh, the last few weeks, published in the last few weeks, which points out the significance of this digital mapping project. So Lintel and I have talked about how we might uh, proceed, and we've agreed that there have been some important shifts in both the writing and thinking about history over the last 10 to 15 years, but also in the tools that we might use to represent history, digital tools and digital technologies. And so what we're talking about here is largely a digital humanities project, and that's one of the key areas of focus of the Centre for 21st Century Humanities. So without further ado and words from me, I'd like to start asking Lyndall a series of questions and then we'll have a, a period of time at the end for you to ask questions and we'll try and leave ample time because it is such a large uh, audience, so thank you for that. So welcome Lyndall, lovely thank to you. see you. Thank you. Lyndall, let's start with uh, maybe an obvious question mm -hmm. but one that not everybody might really understand or know the answer to and that is what was your motivation for uh, beginning this research project and uh, how does it sort of, how does it take off? Or how did it take off? I think the project began when I was uh, <clears throat> doing a more recent edition of my work on the Tasmanian Aborigines. And the latest edition is really a response to the history wars that were, began during the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000, uh, when a British, when an Australian journalist in London uh, Philip Knightley wrote a book called Australia, a Biography, which was intended for the overseas people at, uh, attending the Sydney Olympics who knew almost nothing about Australia's history. And in that book, Philip Knightley uh, made some throwaway lines about how there were hundreds of massacres across Australia. And, uh, but he didn't sort of quote any in particular. He didn't seem to identify any particular massacres. Perhaps he talked about Mile Creek, but it was sort of uh, seen as a, a, a kind of a challenge to Australian historians who at that point hadn't really uh, included frontier massacres in any detail in their histories of Australia. I might have mentioned one or two, but Philip Knightley kind of threw down the gauntlet in a way and it was very quickly picked up by Keith Winshuttle, who uh, quickly wrote some articles in a Quadrant magazine, which were published in time for the Sydney Olympics, in which he said there were very few frontier massacres and that those that were known were, there was about five that he acknowledged had happened, and the rest had all been invented by Australian historians. And I thought, this is very odd. Australian historians haven't written about them, how could we have invented them? And that, in a sense, was the beginning of the history wars. And before I knew it, Keith was looking at my book on the second edition of the Aboriginal Tasmanians, where he said that I had invented uh, massacres during the Black War in Tasmania. So uh, then I kind of became the key target of the history wars for about two or three years. And let me tell you, it's no joy being a target where you've got to defend something you've never said or never done. So I thought I'd better go back and have a look at what this massacre business was all about. And certainly uh, during this period, the National Museum of Australia was opened in Canberra and they had a, um, an exhibition of the Bells Falls massacre near Bathurst, uh, which was largely based on the work of a wonderful Newcastle historian, David Roberts. And David pointed out that he'd heard these stories of this massacre in the local pub. 
and that, but he knew nothing about it. He couldn't find the actual site, but he wrote a very important um, article in a historical journal about how difficult it is to find evidence of massacre beyond the stories that you get in the local pub. Nevertheless, the National Museum decided that there was enough interest in this work about massacre to have um, a small exhibition in the new museum about what this massacre meant. And that was quickly attacked by Keith Winchuttle saying that this is exactly what happens. Historians say these massacres happen, but they never provide any detail. At the same time, uh, Keith also attacked um, the then Governor General for mentioning a massacre at Mistake Creek in the Kimberley, which had been told to him by an Aboriginal woman in the Kimberley who said that her grandparents had been killed in that massacre. And again, Keith said, where's the evidence? In fact, she said it was her mother, her parents, not her grandparents, and so on. And the story took off in a big way. So after a while, it was quite clear that historians couldn't avoid this issue of massacre. And it was up to us to try and find a way of investigating them, developing a methodology, getting a definition of frontier massacre. And in a sense, the whole project fell into my lap uh, because my book uh, had been a key target in the history wars. Uh, I thought I needed to go back and have a look at, at what uh, a massacre was um, and why is it, had it become such an important issue. Many historians said, look, Lindor, don't bother. It's, we'll never know how many Aboriginal people were killed on the frontier. We know there were massacres, but really nobody wants to talk about it. They were hidden away. People exaggerated them. I think we need to take a step back. <coughs> I really couldn't do that. I was really under the gun, as one of the journalists from the Australian uh, gleefully pointed out to me. It was really up to me to try and do something about this issue of massacre. What is a massacre? How do they happen? What are their characteristics? Um, what is the definition of frontier massacre? So about uh, I started to look at international uh, work on massacre and was very intrigued to find that uh, European scholars had got interested in the issue of massacre following the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia in 2005. That massacre was hidden for some time. People knew something was going on but they couldn't find any details. Nobody owned up to it. There was this code of silence that had fallen over this issue when there were journalists hanging around, there were UN peacekeepers around, but nobody could talk about it. There was this sort of profound silence. And then gradually, over the next few months, the details started to leak out. And I thought, hmm, this sounds interesting. Isn't this a little bit like what could happen, what could have happened on the frontier in Australia? Aboriginal people were always talking about massacre. And I have to say, when I was an academic at, the, at Griffith University in Brisbane, I had a couple of Aboriginal students who came from the Bundaberg area of southern Queensland, took me home one weekend to meet their families, and as we were driving along nearby, 
One of them pointed out the window and said, in that lagoon was where my ancestors were massacred. Well, at the time, I thought, well, that's interesting. Nothing to do with me. It was sort of too hard for me to grab. That was the 1980s. Now, in the mid-2000s, I couldn't let it go. I began to think more carefully, how can we devise a way of <clears throat> understanding Frontier Massacre? So, uh, at the time, I was doing a new edition of my book on the Tasmanian Aborigines, and so I began to look at the international literature and came across a couple of international scholars who had been grappling with this very, uh, with this very topic. And one of them was a French sociologist called Jacques Semelin, and he published some important work on characteristics of massacre. First of all, he said, it's not something that is an aberration, is, is irrational. It's a rational act. It's well planned. And that was a shock to me. I thought it was something where it was an act of excess. He said, no, it's not an act of excess. It's a carefully planned uh, event, and it's usually in response to some, uh, an attack on the on their perpetrator's uh, prestige. It might be the killing of an important uh, person that's part of the um, perpetrator's uh, uh, group, or it could be the loss or the stealing of important uh, property, uh, jewels, for example, or gold. In the case of the frontier, it was, this, it was the, the so-called stealing of sheep and cattle. And then I began to look more carefully at what we knew in Australia, and I decided that I needed a definition. And I looked very closely at the ones, the massacres that I'd worked on in Tasmania and in Victoria, and I found that uh, uh, usually um, <clears throat> Aboriginal people were killed at campsites in riverbeds, uh, or they were driven uh, into gullies or or ravines or something like that. And in Tasmania and Victoria, it was often an attack on a campsite which would be about 20 people. That is a, a half group of Aboriginal people. And then I looked at some literature from North America and found that North American Native American historians had said that if you kill 30% of a half group in one operation, you're really undermining that group's ability to continue on as they were. So if you have a half group of about 20 Aboriginal people and 30% of them are killed in one operation, defenceless people killed in one operation, that's six people. And that six people, losing that six people from that group means that they're losing their ability to hunt effectively, to provide food effectively, to conduct their ceremonial, that is very important for their survival, and that the group that is left is, um, becomes vulnerable to a further attack and becomes vulnerable to disease. In other words, that group has been completely undermined. It was also drawn to my attention that when uh, the Blitzkrieg was on in Poland in 1939, 
when the Russians and the Germans invaded Poland, they managed in the space of one month to kill off nearly 30% of the Polish population. So I realised then that killing about 30% of a group in one go, a defenceless group in one go, you're making huge inroads into the survival of that population. I discovered that uh, a few other historians had reached the same number of six, so that has been the number I have, that has been part of my methodology. And then I applied that to my research in Tasmania and found that uh, massacres, um, I found about 40 odd massacres in Tasmania during the Black War, and that they accounted for more than 50% of Aboriginal people who were recorded killed overall. So massacre is, uh, so over 50%, sorry, over 50% of Aboriginal killed overall. And that massacre is a very quick way of reducing an Aboriginal population. It's much more effective use of the perpetrator's time to attack a camp and kill at least six people in one go than shooting the odd Aboriginal person that they also found. I had been brought up to believe that Aboriginal people on the frontier were usually killed in ones and twos. But they were more likely to have been killed in larger numbers and that six or more became, uh, was usually the average number. So massacre is very important. If they're responsible, if massacres are responsible for the killing of more than 50% of Aboriginal people killed overall, then we have, historians had a big problem to engage with. And so that was how I began to think, well, massacres are actually very important. If we can find the sites, if we can find the numbers killed, if we can look more closely at the characteristics of massacre, maybe we should be able to present them in a way that is more uh, accessible. Because I need to show my fellow Australians how important massacre is. It's just not something that was rare. It was widespread across the frontier in Tasmania, and I found that it was widespread across the, the frontier in Victoria. And when I was completing the latest edition of my book on the Tasmanian Aborigines, I had a wonderful cartographer who prepared all of these maps. And they're in the book. But they look pretty, you know, these maps, they, they are important, um, but they didn't look very lively. They didn't look as if the story was there. And at that point, the cartographer said to me, well, you could put this on a digital map, you know, and then people could see for themselves what this was. So somewhere around when I was finishing uh, that book in 2012, I was draw my attention was drawn to the fact that there'd been big changes in digital technology. It was now possible to put a lot of material and information on a map, put it up online, and people could investigate it themselves. So having done all this research on massacre in Tasmania and Victoria, I thought, wow, maybe we could put it up on a digital map. So I think I'll end my little story there. <laughs>
It's a, a wonderful start and so rich for me to sort of draw out some points while you um, replenish. Lyndall's had some laryngitis, so replenish your throat. So I think uh, it seems to me that what was at stake was evidence uh, and the role of the historian also in Australia as a public intellectual to be able to stand up to these kinds of, I guess, attacks on what had been uh, received knowledge or wisdom yes. and to actually say, yes, we do need to plot this and to look for the evidence. So moving on from that then, uh, mm. thinking about you, you've come up with a, a methodology, how to define a massacre through... Uh, this kind of sense of a global experience yes. of what massacre looks like, yes. and uh, you've you've got a kind of, uh, if you like, a, a methodology around that and mm -hmm. approach. What is the evidence then that you are finding that helps you plot these points on that map? Well, the evidence in many cases is not very difficult to find, uh, although there's usually a code of silence that surrounds the act of massacre. Uh, in the 19th century, as the colonial frontier was moving across Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, local newspapers were very interested in massacre and there was usually somebody who acknowledged something had gone on. So I've, and at, at this point, most of the colonial newspapers are becoming available on trove. So that was another big technical step forward. I didn't have to go and sit back in the archives in Hobart and Sydney and look at the colonial newspapers there. And looking at them on microfilm is pretty hard work these days. So just as I was really thinking about the evidence, up pops Trove, up pops newspapers from Victoria and Tasmania, which were among the first to go up on Trove. And I found that uh, there'd be a, a little piece, a little just a little note in a paper uh, that uh, there'd been the, the native police in Victoria had been out along the Murray River and uh, they'd come back very pleased with themselves and said that they had managed to kill six people uh, in one operation and then in another operation. So I began to learn how to interpret the newspapers uh, it took me a while. Uh, some of the stories are just stories. You have to learn to uh, accept what is, is useful and to throw away what isn't. So again, it's like reading archival material. Some of them, the material is very useful, others isn't. But sometimes you'd get a story that about how a group of Aboriginal people had disappeared who were there last week but not there this week. And then you would find a settler diary telling me that uh, he, he had gone out with some friends to teach the Aborigines a lesson. And then you would find a, a, a memoir written 20 years later about their experiences of going out after Aboriginal people. So it was disparate evidence, but bringing it all together, you could actually construct a picture. Needless to say, it is time-consuming, which is why one of the reasons why the project uh, technically should have finished a while ago, but is still going on. Devising the techniques and methodology of looking for evidence is very time-consuming, but once you're on the trail, you can certainly work through. That doesn't mean I've been able to account for every massacre that took place, for example, in Tasmania or Victoria. 
but I can show you the spread of the kinds of massacres that took place, when they happened in, and where they happened. We're beginning to find in Victoria the same names of perpetrators popping up. Some who were perpetrators in, Western, in the Western District uh, in the late 1830s and early 1840s start popping up in Gippsland in the mid-1840s. Similar names start to appear in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. Uh, and there's no doubt that some perpetrators were very good at it and sword is what they had to do. They were often stockmen or settlers who were the next generation of settlers, their sons going up, uh, opening up uh, new pastoral areas. The, uh, and when you see names that you've seen before, that's often another lead. When I got into Queensland, I was astonished to find that the Queensland newspapers were very, had wonderful information about massacres along the Condamine River, up around Maryborough, uh, and, and going further north again. Uh, Queensland is a much more complicated story because in the middle of it all, there's a major, there are major gold rushes and uh, there are uh, there are uh, sugar, far, sugar plantations established. It's a much more complicated story than just sheep and cattle. Uh, by the time gold arrives in, uh, the gold rushes arrive in Victoria, most of the Aboriginal people have been killed. We think in Victoria uh, more than 80% of the Aboriginal population uh, was killed between 1836 and 1851. So we've got a big story here and um, I've got a small team of researchers and we're working very hard to record as many as we possibly can. That does not mean we'll get everyone and I don't know how many I'm going to get but I'll keep on working till we've got the map. As you can see it's Eastern Australia at the moment and there's many gaps to fill in but we will get there, we will get there. And, and Lindell, on that note, uh, when you first were funded by the Australian Research Council to look at mapping colonial frontier violence, mm. you're also looking at the violence of Aboriginal people towards white settlers, and I yes. think that's also going to feature in the map. Just might be useful. We're focusing on the uh, mapping Aboriginal massacres part yes. of that today in the conversation, but that is an interesting element, isn't it, of the research? Oh, yes. Mm. The frontier was incredibly violent, and I have been able to record that uh, at least six or seven massacres in Eastern Australia alone. There was one, uh, we've got one in, um, I haven't been able to find any in Tasmania, but somebody's giving me some evidence about that at this very moment. There certainly was one in Victoria. Uh, we know that there were a couple in New South Wales and a number in Queensland. Uh, the ones in Queensland are very well known, like Cullen Laringo um, and Hornet Bank in the 1850s and the 1860s. There were others. Uh, relating to shipwrecks on the Queensland coast where, um, the, uh, uh, where some of the uh, survivors of the shipwreck were also killed. We also have uh, evidence of a, a massacre of uh, white people in South Australia, again relating to a shipwreck. And we think that the last massacre in New South Wales uh, was in 1900 with the Jimmy Governor massacre at Breelong in 1900. Although I think there were other massacres um, 
of Aboriginal people after that. But I think that's very interesting. Mm. Massacres of white people are incredibly well recorded. So that, and that, that's actually <laughs> where I was going with that. They get yeah. a lot of publicity. There's yeah. often committees of inquiry, right. endless newspaper stories, right. and even drawings and, and so on. Yeah. Um, so we do know about those. So, so I was thinking about that because I was thinking about what you said about corroboration. Yes. So one of the tools of the historian uh, in sifting through evidence is yes. to make sure that you don't have just one instance, obviously, but several, and you've talked about corroborating these, yes. really to make this a very tight and robust methodology. Absolutely. Uh, and so as you say, when the, the, the real work, therefore, is yes. in sifting through the massacres where there aren't as many uh, outcries in public, right? So, yes. No, they are recorded on the map. Um, most of the massacres of Aboriginal people are recorded in yellow dots and the massacres of white people or colonists are recorded uh, with a blue square. Mm. We've also got cases of uh, Ab uh, Aboriginal people massacring um, Malay people in the Northern Territory. And I'm engaged in a conversation, an email conversation at the moment, as to how those massacres will be acknowledged on the map. Will it be the, will it be the blue square or should we get another right, colour right. and another mm. symbol? Mm. And I'm sorting through that at the moment. So we do have, um, and we think that there'll be others like that in the Kimberley region, okay. in Western Australia. Mm. This is a big story. Yeah. It's a big story. And, and the word story is interesting because another thing you said a moment ago was that this is... Um, a narrative that you can represent through a digital map as a yes. tool. And I guess the next kind of line of thinking and inquiry might be how do you think this will change the way we tell stories about or narrate history in Australia? Uh, how does it kind of shape the intellectual landscape but also the public story that we understand about, about the colonial frontier? I think it's a very important story. I think we've been... I think to remind us of the comment made by the anthropologist Bill Stanner what, right back in 1968, that we've got a, a sort of a code of silence over the colonial frontier and that we really don't want to know what happened or that we want to deny that violence. And so my task is to break that code and to develop a methodology that we can investigate massacre. When the map was first to put online in July last year, uh, the responses were on two levels, was the international response, uh, where journalists contacted me and said, why haven't you done this before? Everybody in the rest of the world knows that this happened in Australia. Why are, you, why are Australians taking so long to acknowledge it? And I was a bit taken aback by that. I hadn't realised that internationally there was this widespread belief that there were massacres across Australia. The second was at home and people contacted me and said, at last, you know, here it is, we need to know, and why didn't you do this before? <laughs> so it's as if the historians might be catching up with, uh, with the general public. I think that's very interesting. The other thing that the, the people contacted me about was, why haven't you got the massacre that I know a great deal about in my hometown? Uh, and the response has largely been from regional Australia. People have been very generous in offering me more evidence or uh, about an exit massacre that was already on the map or one that wasn't on the map and saying, here's the evidence that I have been collecting 
over the last 30 years. So the map has become very much a, a national community map. People want the information to be as correct as possible. They want to make sure that the site is as close as possible to the actual site. Some people have written in and said, yes, we know about that massacre. It was actually on the other side of the river. And, he, and uh, here's my evidence to prove that. So it's, um, the good thing about digital maps is that you can change things. Mm. It's not set in concrete. So I look back now on my book on the Tasmanian Aborigines and my, all the maps that we took ages and ages to prepare, but m m not all of them, but some of them are now out of date because we've got new information has turned up. So the wonderful thing about digital mapping is that you can change things as new information appears. And that's very exciting for the historian. Uh, a number of archaeologists have contacted me with, with archaeological evidence that they've since found. Uh, linguists have contacted me saying that we've found this. Many, many Aboriginal people have contacted me about uh, the evidence that they have and the stories that they have. So it's become a a kind of national project in a way. And I feel I've become a bit of a custodian mm. to ensure that the information on that map is as accurate as we can possibly find. So it's, um, I've, become, I've become aware of a huge national responsibility that I have acquired that I certainly was not aware of when I began the project. And we've talked before about the fact that this is an unusual situation for a historian to find herself in the idea that the response from the public might uh, inevitably reshape the way you actually conduct yes. the research. So what would you say about that? You've talked about people bringing you new interpretations mm -hmm. or new evidence. Has it changed the way you've gone about the project or have you stayed pretty steady with your methodology and, and so on? It hasn't changed the methodology, but it has certainly widened out uh, the source materials. Uh, I was originally looking in the archival materials, newspapers, 19th century, settlers' reports, um, police reports, although the police reports are very good at covering things up, I've discovered. But if you've got a police report, you know that the police have been out there. And if they come back with a report and saying, we went out, uh, and we've come back, we didn't really find anything. And then you've got a settler's account saying, well, actually, they did come and find a number of people and they attacked the camp at dawn and so on and so forth. So if you've got a police report, you know they've been out there. Nine times out of ten, they've been up to mischief. So that, that's been very helpful. And then you've got what many people from the general public have been sending me as information from their own families. Um, that some of them are still uh, related to properties which their ancestors grew up on. Or Aboriginal people writing to me and saying, actually, those people there who were massacred belonged uh, our ancestors of mine, and uh, there were more than you've written on your map. So it's sort of double checking. It's a double checking process. Uh, I had a wonderful email from an Aboriginal community um, in central Queensland where I had uh, noted uh, a particular massacre in the early 1860s. And this guy wrote to me and said, look, my community has been looking for that site. We thought it was uh, 
15 kilometres in the other direction, but we looked at the coordinates that you had provided and we went and found the site and we would like to put a memorial there. That's very moving. You know, you realise then how important your job is to try and get it as accurate as possible. So I think it's um, profoundly changing the way we're looking at the frontier and the past, and I think it is going to change the way Australians are looking at their past. We can't run away from it anymore. We can't ignore it anymore. We can't deny it. So I think it is going to bring about a major shift in the way in which we look at the, uh, at the colonial frontier. I want to ask you what uh, the future is and where you go from here, but mm. before I get to that, I, I'm also kind of interested in your own personal response. So it's been a moving experience to mm. work with people in the community and uh, take in their ideas about the research process. How else has it changed you as a historian, do you think? Do you have a, a different sensibility around the idea of representing history through these other means, such as digital maps? I think that the digital map has really opened the possibility of making history and the evidence of history very accessible to everybody. Um, we are trying, as new technologies come in, uh, where we've got the sources listed, I've given the sources um, a rating where I think the sources are absolutely wonderful and incontrovertible and the information is coming from different, uh, different areas. I've given that three stars. Where the sources are great, but I'd like more, I've given them two stars. And where I've got one fabulous source, but wouldn't it be great to have more, I've given it one star. And what the research team is trying to do is to make those sources accessible online, that you can click on the sources and it's there. We can do that with most of the newspaper sources because they've come from Trove, or most of them have come from Trove. And in the next, um, in the next uh, iteration of the map, which will probably happen in early May, we're hoping that you'll be able to, when you click on the map and you click on a site and then you click onto the source, you'll be able to check the source out for yourself. Some of the sites have got, uh, had, had um, drawings made at the time or a bit later or more recently and we're hoping to put those up so you can click on that as well. We do have a visual image of the site as it looks today. And when you look at many of those images, you think, well, how could they have had a massacre there? There's not a single tree, there's, the, the creek has dried up, or you know, the landscape has very significantly changed. One of the things I have found in looking at the visual images is that particularly in Victoria, many of the sites are now at the bottom of reservoirs and dams. It's as if we've wanted to hide them again. And so when I was trying to put the coordinates in, I thought, oh, here's one at the bottom of a dam near Echuca. Here's another one uh, that's now at the bottom of a lake uh, in Gippsland. And so then you have to go back and read a local history of the area about how a dam was put in after World War I or how a lake emerged and so on. So you need to know the, 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 the geographical history of Australia as well and how much of the landscape has changed since we as white people came. So I think that's 
you know, it's forcing us to understand how much of the past has changed for the present. And I think that's very important. We need to understand how we've done that as Australians. I'm not necessarily convinced that many of the, some of the sites have been deliberately hidden, but you never know, do you? You never know. Yeah, I was thinking about how very multidisciplinary this yes. project is, but, but you bring up geographers in particular and that idea of place and making yes. place, uh, how we experience places. Has it changed the way you experience places you know well or, as, or that you know as a historian, as a researcher? Oh, certainly. Um, every time I get in the car now, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the changes. And the Hunter Valley, of course, is a classic example. We know that the Hunter River has shifted and changed because of the many uh, floods and so on, and the agriculture and many, and the mining and so on. And so if I'm looking for incidents, say, in the 1820s, in the 1830s, which is when the Hunter Valley was opened up, some of the sites I'm looking for just simply are not there because the river itself has changed and uh, or the area has been overgrazed or there's been agriculture that has long since disappeared. I have to say I've had the greatest difficulty in locating and, and finding massacre sites in the Hunter. The Hunter was opened up in the 1820s at the same time that uh, the settled districts in Tasmania were opened up. Um, sheep and cattle was the reason. There were many massacres in Tasmania in the 1820s. I find it very difficult to believe that there were not a similar number of massacres along the Hunter in the same period. I have found about four. So I'm um, on the lookout. If anyone has information, I would love to hear from them. Uh, this is a, a national project and we do know that uh, the Hunter had a very large Aboriginal population and we do know that um, the Mounted Police were very busy in this area and uh, getting enough information is proving very elusive. So um, if you can help, I would be most grateful. And uh, in a moment, I will open up for um, questions from all of you because I can see there are probably people who'd really like to contribute. Just um, as I'm interested to know, how many people have um, already had access to the map and had a look at it? A few of you? That's great. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about testing it and how, it, how you experience it too, potentially, in those questions. Mm. So, Lyndall, before we do that, though, where mm. to from here? What do you need to complete? Uh, what are your next short-term, long-term, medium-term goals? How do you, how do you proceed? Yes. Um, well, stage one was launched in July last year. Uh, stage two, which will hopefully include many more incidents from Eastern Australia and include some incidents from the Northern Territory and South Australia, will be launched uh, early in May. Uh, and that leaves um, Western Australia, which is huge to do, and we hope we will have completed that by the end of 2019 or okay. early 2020. Mm -hmm. So there will be a point of where the project will officially, not necessarily officially end, but the map will look very much more complete than it does now. There has been very great interest from indigenous communities in North America uh, who would like to do a similar kind of map, uh, particularly in Canada and in the Western United States. 
There has been interest from Indigenous communities in South Africa as well. And more recently, I've had interest from a historian in Ireland who is very keen to map the massacres that took place during uh, the Black and Tan Rebellion in the early 20th century. Uh, and I find that very interesting. There were apparently a number of massacres which are still hidden from public view and which are highly contested. So I would like to hope that having the methodology, it can be applied internationally. So there's great scope. And of course, as the technology becomes more and more sophisticated, I think we'll be able to do many more things with the map and make it even more accessible than it is at the moment. Wonderful. So um, there's a, a really big uh, challenge, I think, here, which is to uh, keep momentum, keep it going. And I know Lyndall takes great um, heart and, uh, I guess, pleasure from the fact that people are interacting with it. So let's open up for some conversation. Um, and if there are differences of opinion around the politics of these maps, I um, would ask that everyone's respectful, and I'm sure Lyndall will be happy mm. to answer your questions. So we have a one yeah. down the back there. Okay, the question, the question is, did Keith Windshuttle retract his accusations? No, they, they're, they're journalists. They don't need to do that. <laughs> uh, okay. Hang on, I've been given the mic, by the <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Look, uh, just some context. I'm a retired um, law professor and my special mm. field's Commission of Inquiries. Yes. You know, there are a number of Commission inquiries underway at the moment. The Banking Royal Commission, there's the Institutional Child Abuse Royal Commission, and there's the um, tampering, I don't think people can hear you, tampering with the ball commission of inquiry, if you like. <laughs> All those inquiries, if they're done thoroughly and properly, will be about cultures, right? And uh, cultures often come from the top. Um, are you looking at the possibility of cultures, of massacres, and is it possible that it comes from the top or the influence of the top, for example, the AA company in the Hunter Valley? So, um, are there any boardrooms involved here, not in terms of sitting down to work out conspiracies, but where does the organisation come from for sending out people to take out 30% or 50%? Is it just a couple of madmen out there, or is there a, something a little more culture about it? Yes, thank you for that. <clears throat> I think most of the massacres that I've come across have largely been organised by the state, uh, are the police, uh, Crown Lands Commissioners, uh, magistrates uh, who feel that, uh, that they, had, uh, they had the go ahead to do this. It was really uh, taking control of the country. It was a war um, and we did have, it, you know, people say it was an undeclared war. I don't think it was ever undeclared. Uh, we did have uh, martial law in uh, Bathurst uh, in 1824, and although that was eventually revoked, it set the pace for what was going to happen after that. We had, a, we had martial law in Tasmania, for, of course, for nearly four years. These massacres uh, are largely conducted or at the behest of the state, and it needed the resources of the state to carry them out. Settlers certainly carried them out, but I think if we look at all of the ones that I've got on the map at the moment, nearly 200, I'd say that more than half, probably about 60 or 70 percent, were carried out at the direct 
behest of the state. Also, at no point in our history has any government, colonial or state or territory, said this has to stop. We've never said that. I think we've still got it going on in the Northern Territory. And we've never said enough. We must stop this. And it's the responsibility of the state to do that. It has never done that. Lyndall, as I understand it, most of the violence in Queensland was perpetrated and or initiated by the Queensland Native Police. Does that mean we should have another coloured dot on the map? No, they were arms of the state. They, they were doing the work that the settlers wouldn't do. They were paid by the state and uh, it doesn't matter who does it if you're paid by the state to do it. And of course that happened across the British Empire. Most of the massacres that happened across the British Empire were carried out by indigenous people who were hired by the British government uh, to undertake it. We have to take responsibility for that. We can't go and say, oh, it was done by Aboriginal people, it was done by this group, it was done by that group. It was done, we are, we are the beneficiaries of all of those massacres that happened. And we have to recognise that. Okay. Um, two points I want to make. One, or well, three actually. One is acknowledgement that I understand what it takes to get an ARC grant and the <laughs> rigour of what you have put together is impeccable to have received that funding. Um, and thank you. The second thing I want to say is in the 1970s when I attended Monash University, I was lectured by an Aboriginal woman who stood at the front and she said to me, my family were out in the bush when the white people on the Murray River delivered flour to the whole community that had strychnine in it and all of that community was killed. The people who did that to my family, my, my clan, still farm that land and it has been handed down for generations. And that's when I saw that, yes, your discipline is history and I understand it, but it's today. This was a woman in 1970 who'd made her way into academia and said, this is what happened to my family. And so always couching this in history yes. is not acknowledging Bruce and mm. where Bruce has come from to be the academic he is today and all of the Aboriginal people who might be here who know these stories. This is, you know, it didn't just disappear and just... Mm. And this is what's fantastic about your map because the people who know the stories can now have their voice heard and it's just fantastic. And for us not to acknowledge, my, one of my family, Irish, has his death certificate speared to death by Aborigines in the Northern Territory. There was a frontier war going on. On. We did not just walk in nicely. They fought back and so they should have. And that's part of my white history, my privileged history here. And thank you very much for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Lyndall. Um, uh, I come from a perspective of having done research on the Mile Creek Massacre and the subsequent legal proceedings from your uh, research, what happened from a legal point of view in the, in the colony that uh, there were no further legal proceedings following massacres or 
were there legal proceedings? There were attempts to, uh, there were a few attempts in the 1840s to bring perpetrators to justice. There was a case uh, in the mid-1840s of a poisoning, actually, uh, at Kangaroo Creek in northern New South Wales. And uh, the, the chief perpetrator uh, disappeared. Um, there was another dreadful case uh, in what is now southern Queensland, uh, where um, a settler uh, went on the rampage um, and other settlers and killed many Aboriginal people. Uh, and a couple of settlers were very upset about that and they uh, tried to get this guy arrested. Uh, and witnesses, having witnesses, of course, is very important in these cases. And the case was heard at Mait in Maitland. That was the nearest um, that was the nearest courthouse in those days. Um, and uh, a couple of the witnesses were uh, told not to say anything. And uh, the the guy who was the chief perpetrator again disappeared. So there were various efforts following the Mile Creek Massacre uh, to bring certain perpetrators to justice. But there's no doubt. I mean, they all knew they were doing wrong. Very few were open about it. They all knew it was wrong. You do not do this. You do not go and kill a group of undefended people. You, you know, attacking their campsite at dawn is, um, is not acceptable. Uh, and they knew they were doing wrong. So, um, and so I think that there, there was a moment in the 1840s when the New South Wales government did try to do something about it. However, it was very half-hearted and uh, we don't get a, a real response again until the Royal Commission into the Forest River massacres in 1926 in Western Australia. And that Royal Commission let the perpetrators go free. So we've all been involved in a gigantic conspiracy of silence for a very long time. Now, the other day I went to the ATM in Mayfield and tried to get some money out. And as I was trying to do that, this Koori woman came up to me and said, oh, can I have some money? And I punched my thing and I looked at my account and the measly amount of money I had in there, but the machine wouldn't give me any money because it was empty. Right? So I said, look, I, I can't get any money out of this thing. So. So I looked in my pocket and I had $2.30 or whatever, and I gave it to her, right? At that time, I thought, hang on, this person here should be the richest person in this land. And they've never sold this land. Now, they're building all these fucking flats all over this place, and everybody's talking real estate, but meanwhile, the original owners of this land never got a cent. When are we going to start paying rent to these people? <laughs> Yeah. Good point. Thank you for your comment. I think uh, it's, it's fantastic to see the passion in this room, and I know Lyndall's very passionate also, and that's really great. I'm wondering if we've got some more questions that relate to um, the technologies and, and the mapping pro process. Yep, there's one down here. Oh, and, one yeah. here. Okay, sorry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Professor, thank you very yeah. much. I, w I was elated when I knew you were going to do this talk. Uh, I had, was very lucky with my parents. Mother spoke of her black brother, Douglas Grant. From, she was born on Beltry Station in 1905. He went to the First World War with her brothers. And he was captured by the Germans who found, 
took great interest in him because of his ethnic origin and all that. He came back to Australia. He was in Lithgow during the Second World War working in a small arms factory and he helped uh, people while he was in prison because he could write, he was literate. He'd survived a massacre and the Grant family reared him as their son. The other thing, in 1994, I visited uh, Sydney Art Gallery just at the time of the, um, um, the Archibald Prize and there was an enormous painting about the size of that and there's about a hundred and so I've got a copy of it on, uh, in this, painted by this artist and people stood before it, they were all chained, he got marvellous expression into their eyes, their feet were beautiful, their feet were beautiful because they were untrammeled by boots have manacles. It's really terrible to look at and the look in the men's eyes. Um, I asked the art gallery for the artist's address and he got, they gave it to me. It was a man called Gender Vendra in, South, in um, Victoria and I didn't hear from him but the following year, 95 at the time of the Archibald, the phone rings and hello, uh, I'm on my way staying at Avalon. I have a photograph of that painting. It was the artist. So he came to see me and I have it and it's framed in my home and a copy of it. I had, I had it copied because my younger sister wanted one. I'd like to ask you, when they're mandled a lot, there must be evidence that there were part of, some of them were massacred. What happened to these people who were in chains? It's really a most confronting. And I also saw what appears to be a genuine photograph on which the painting is based in Bruce Elder's book, Blood on the Wattle. Could you help me a bit there, please? I'll, I'll talk to you later, Vera. Thank you. I think um, that would be great, actually, if, um, if you're prepared to have a chat with a few people afterwards, because they're obviously going to have more questions than time. Mm -hmm. Where's the microphone at right now? OK. Hey, um, I was uh, lucky enough to listen to uh, Wiradjuri Elder Dinawan uh, Jiradabung um, speak about can you hear me in this microphone? Is no, sorry, right. I was just saying there's someone here. Oh, okay, here. good. Um, yeah, and he was talking about um, how in the yeah in Bathurst um, women were targeted for massacres as a way to um, basically just like decimate the men emotionally as well as you know physically. Um, and I just wondered, yeah, about um, whether you're looking at at gender in massacres as well and uh, also about um, the role of rape and sexual violence uh, in colonisation. Thank you for your question. Yes, it is. Uh, we are recording uh, as much information as we can uh, about gender. I'm writing a paper on that at the moment. Yeah, and Lyndall's part of another big team looking at some of these questions too. Yeah. So I think we've got one last question. You've been very patient. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this time last week, I was actually um, at an Aboriginal massacre site mm -hmm. uh, with a healing ceremony that was being conducted down the south coast, which was profoundly moving. Uh, I'm a photographer and I document things like this. Um, and uh, this elder is going ahead and doing these healing ceremonies just off his own bat because he's fed up with authorities and trying to deal with them as hopeless. Um, I also documented the anniversary, the 200th anniversary of the Appen massacre 
and I was uh, very disappointed to learn that that was on the orders of Governor Macquarie and I had no idea about that. That was a huge ceremony. There were probably a thousand or more yes, people yes. there. I don't know if you were there. Once again, very moving. There were children that had made things and lots of elders and so that was uh, quite something. Uh, but my question is, um, how many uh, of your uh, sites are you finding out about from Aboriginal people themselves? Because they're the ones that have the oral history and they're not making it up. No, I know that. Um, um, this is a very hard question to answer. I've been asked it many times before. This is actually a whitefellas story and there's a lot of whitefellas sources. Aboriginal people have c contacted me and I've been very happy and willing to, ex to accept you know, what they tell me. But I haven't got time to go around and talk to every Aboriginal community. Every Aboriginal community has a story, at least one. And I'm hoping if I did that, the map would never, you know, I wouldn't got as far as I have today. It's simply a matter of time. Um, Aboriginal people, I've had many people, Aboriginal people have contacted me and uh, pointed out issues about sight or numbers and, and things like that. Um, I will get there, but I know it's their story, but it's also a perpetrator's story, and that's my focus. It's what we have done. And I think I have to stick with that, because if I don't do that, uh, it'll be like a huge anthropology story that will lose, I'll just never finish it. On, on that note, <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to thank all of you for fabulous input. It's, it's really stirred um, your responses, intellectual and personal. I really appreciate that, and I know Lyndall does too. Um, please join me in thanking Lyndall Ryan, Conjoint Professor at the University of Newcastle. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Hello. Oh.